Welcome to our Wednesday live event known as Innovation in Audio. Today, right now, our guest is Nashida Roy Pope. If you don't yet know her by name, just wait until you see what she's done and where she wants to go with her life. It's going to be kind of obvious. But before we get started with her, I do want to draw your attention to this and share some upcoming guests on the Encouragers. This, of course, is for the Radio Rally and the Encouragers Innovation and Audio, what you're listening to right now. Coming up on Monday, January 17th, we have our guest, the legendary programmer, John Sebastian, all the way from Phoenix, where we'll talk about his career, his programming philosophy, and his new format called The Wow Factor. That's going to be on the Radio Rally on Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Then on Wednesday, next Wednesday, one week from right now, we have a very unusual guest. We're going to invite a radio person to our innovation in audio. And of course, who would be that person? It would be Fred Jacobs, the owner of Jacobs Media. And there's some very significant reasons that we have issued this invitation to Fred. You're going to find out why that is and why he is special enough to be in that category coming up next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. By the way, please do connect with the people that you see on stage tonight because we do like bringing people to you that that you may not um, get a chance to hear from otherwise. And we also want you to have the opportunity to mix it up with people who are engaged in, involved in, and appreciate innovation. So look around the room during this event as well to connect with others for the purpose of networking. By the way, this event will become a podcast episode called the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast. It is available right now on Apple Audible, Spotify, or just about anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast and JustJoeProductions.com for creating our audio footprint and distributing our podcast. Let's talk about Nashida for a minute as if she's not here. Okay. She really is. You can see her, but listen, 10 plus years of leadership experience working in high impact global roles in the tech and the nonprofit sectors. I know you've got to be thinking, how does that work together? We're going to find out. Our guest loves roles where she can innovate new models and or programs to address unmet gaps. I said it. She also firmly believes that diversity positively impacts innovation. Of course, it does. Customer experience and financial outcomes. She literally began her career in an unexpected place as an international consultant in the Middle East region for nonprofit organizations and a small software company. She, of course, since that time has joined a leading global tech company in 2012, where she has led strategic global initiatives. Uh, and, and, and this was to drive external thought leadership, employee engagement, talent development, sales revenue, diversity recruiting, and award-winning customer experience and marketing campaigns. You think we learned something from her? I think we can. She currently leads a leadership development program with 20 global members. She's also the founder and visionary talent of uh, uh, the diversity program. Now, now listen, 
this is usually where I get to say hello. So I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do a good job of doing that. Nishida, oh, please welcome to the Encouragers in Innovation and Audio. How are you? Thank you so much, Lloyd. I'm doing great. So happy to be here. Well, we're happy that you are here. You know, you literally started your career in places like Cairo, Egypt, uh, uh, Beirut, Lebanon. You were in Jordan and you worked for what is now Oracle in Abu Dhabi. These areas are not really world famous for diversity, at least from my vantage point. And would you say that they are, by the way? And what did you learn working in these environments? And one last thing, can you tell us about your daily work in these early for you companies? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right, Lloyd. It was my curiosity, just like yours. We, many of us Americans, I think we had a preconceived notion about what the Middle East was, especially, and, and unfortunately, after 9-11, I think we got a very one-sided view of the region. And I was very curious when I was in college to really understand you know, who are the people who live there? What is the culture really like? Is it as bad as the news was making it seem? And that, you know, in my heart, in my heart, I I didn't think so, but I had to go see for myself. So early on in, in college, I made a decision to study abroad in Cairo, Egypt, fell in love with the region, the people. And after graduating college, spent almost three years living in the region across all those those countries that you mentioned. I, I lived across four different countries in a span of three years. And what I learned is that, you know, no, no region, and especially the Middle East, it is definitely not a homogeneous region. It's not a monolithic region to to make one stereotype about it would be very naive of us, right? And and being there, not not just the different countries, do they have so many, um, they're so multifaceted in their cultures, but even within countries, you know, there's is, there is so many dimensions. So I really had an appreciation being across the region. Um, I learned that people are people. There are Good Thank people. you for saying that. I yes, love that, actually. Good and bad people everywhere, right? And they're not you know, only living in one part of the world. And I've, I've met, made so many great friends and connections and, you know, people I will spend my life, you know, engaging with. So that was an important lesson for me to know that. Wait, wait, I, I want to ask you this, though. When you meet these sure. different people, you, first, you must have a favorite place out of those four countries. And second, does it, do you feel like it makes you a richer person knowing these people outstretched across the Middle East? 100% yes, I am a better person for it. The more people we can have in our lives, the more people who are different from us, we can have in our lives, I think the better we all are. So I fundamentally believe that. And I was very privileged that I got so many um, of those opportunities over those years. And uh, yes, in your favorite place, over my there, favorite you know. place. Yeah, yeah, I hands down, I would say, Egypt as a country and Cairo as a city, um, because my my cultural roots are Indian. My parents are both from India, and I think Cairo really reminded me of a big Indian city. It had the the hustle and the bustle, and the, the people. The people in Cairo are very, in Cairo are very uh, animated, and they're very and they're very. And they really uh, love to know, get to know you very personally, which is, reminds me of my family who are a little bit nosy and always oh. want to know everything. So I, I think I felt very 
welcomed and, you know, people would, you know, bring you into their homes and, you know, with, with no hesitation. So I think for me, the, the warmth mm-hmm. in Egypt and that, that really, um, kind of resilient spirit that people have, even though it's a country that's struggling economically, the optimism that people have, it really gave me a lot of hope and, and appreciation uh, because they, a lot of people don't have a lot in Egypt. It's a poor country, but yet they still are very hopeful about the future. And, you know, we as Americans have a lot at our disposal and a lot of privilege. And I think it really humbled me to be there. I think that that is something that is very important. I think sometimes, especially Americans, we can stand to be a little humbled sometimes. I do want to ask because it looks it looks so different from your life today, but maybe it's not. What was your daily life like in the Middle East at work, you know? Sure. I worked for a few smaller organizations there and the common theme in in all of my jobs across the region, I was essentially a field consultant. So I was very much like out and about um, connecting with different clients, understanding their business needs or product needs or learning their stories. So it was very much um, kind of immersed in the culture and understanding the direct needs and experiences of the the customers or the clients that we were serving. Although, yeah, you're right. Today, my life is quite different. I work for a corporation on the other side of the world. However, I still very much work with global teams. And a large part of what my job entails is getting to know the needs of people, those fundamental human needs, and making sure that I can connect with them and find ways to help people in whatever it is that they're seeking. So I, I think that fundamental um, aspect is is mm-hmm. still there. I just, you know, on another side of the world in a, in a much bigger organization, but that need to connect with people is definitely a theme throughout my career. Well, I can see why your present company has has promoted you in different areas and and has you doing this kind of stuff because one of the great things about innovation if you don't have a culture if you don't have a culture that invites uh solving problems invites encouraging people you don't have innovation correct exactly for sure okay all right. So, you know, things get a little different. Uh, you're doing all the stuff in the Middle East, and I love that your life settled down a little bit. You ended up in a place that I know pretty well because I lived there for 20 years, Charlotte, North Carolina. And you went to work for Bank of America, which is very understandable since that's their seat right there. Uh, this was an internship for you, though. Why did you make this adjustment from the Middle East? What attracted you to Charlotte and Bank of America? Yeah, great question. So as I mentioned, in the Middle East, my job was very much in the field, in the daily experiences of the clients. And I really wanted to take a step back and be able to understand from a more strategic business lens how an organization actually works and makes decisions and plans their operations. So, you know, what better way to do that than to join a large company and really understand how do we do things at scale? So, I, you know, I wouldn't say I was looking to go to Bank of America or or Charlotte, what I was looking for was a fast-paced industry, uh, and a, a company that had a strong culture and a company that had 
a focus on talent development where they would be invested in my growth. And Bank of America kind of fit the bill for me. And I got this great internship at their headquarters in Charlotte. Um, so that's... Think- yeah. I don't think people quite understand how much vision the folks at Bank of America have. And I'm not I'm not promoting the bank or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that having lived in Charlotte and heard the stories and interacted with some of the people, I know that that bank is very, very focused on exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. I think customers mattered a lot to them. And, you know, it's a very well-known business. So I enjoyed it. I, however, also realized that maybe there was something more that I was seeking. And, and that's why I eventually transitioned into tech. But Bank of America was kind of my uh, my entree into the into the corporate space to, to see if I liked it and, and if they liked me. Right. I wasn't sure how I would do. And fortunately, they, they liked me and I liked them, too, and gave me the confidence to pursue future opportunities in similar spaces. I think confidence is so important today, and we are going to talk about how you help younger people with confidence later in this interview. But first, I got to stop right here. You, you, I can't believe this is true. You spent time at Texas A&M, which, which by the way, is much more aggressive and innovative or innovation-oriented of a school than people think outside the state of Texas. Tell us about your time with the Aggies. Sure. Yeah, I I will call my decision to go to Texas A&M, uh, I'll call it a spreadsheet decision. And what I mean is, I literally had a spreadsheet. I was living in the Middle East, you know, realized I needed to go to graduate school to get that business acumen that I was missing, because right. my undergraduate degree was in political science. And so I, I had a spreadsheet, you know, with all of my criteria, which included great school culture, a legacy of kind of community service and giving back, a strong marketing program, small class size, and good return on investment. And whoever made that list is where I applied. And well, so you, wait a minute. So you did not care. You're like, I'm not looking for a particular logo. I'm not looking. For, I, I'm going to spreadsheet it, and the results are the results. Yes, whoever made that spreadsheet is where I applied, and I did not go visit Texas A&M. I had been to Texas once in my life before grad school, but I said, if it meets my criteria, then I'm going to give it a go and we'll see what happens. And I'm, I'm, I'm all about committing to the decision. And, you know, if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, we'll learn something. That's my general philosophy on things. But it turned out to be amazing. So thankfully, it was a good decision. Are you always so data driven? Is this something that you believe firmly? Because that's a data driven decision. No, I would say in my younger years, I always led with my heart. I think I do still often lead with my heart, but I have learned to balance that with the data. And if I can find decisions that meet both. So like, for example, at A&M, the culture is very strong. The the traditions yes. are very strong. The support for their network. And they, when you're an alumni, you're very proud to be an alumni. So those things matter to me as much as the the ranking and the return on investment, right? There, there, it, it's a factor in how I make decisions for sure. It's interesting. You, you do something that I love, which is put people first. And I think that is powerful, especially, especially now when we're living in what I will go ahead and say is the technology century or the, or call it, go ahead and call it the innovation century. You still don't do that without people. So, Here is a direct quote about you. Buckle up and get ready. 
Nishida's ability to navigate and create rotation opportunities across service organization in, uh, immensely helped team members in their career growth and gaining relevant experience. She mentored young professionals like me, which helped us in driving results for our, our rotational teams. Her empathetic approach and creative problem-solving attributes inspire great confidence in the team, unquote. I want to know what drives you to have such impact on teams and especially young professionals, and where does all that empathy come from? Yeah, it's a good question. So first and foremost, I think if you are given the privilege to be a leader, then you have a responsibility to develop the people on your team and understand what is going to motivate them. So I've been very lucky in the roles that I've had to be in a direct or indirect position to influence people's careers. And, and the quote, the, the person you're talking about, the young professional who said that, yes. um, you know, I'm, I was in a direct position to help open doors for them. So one, I, it's, I don't think it's optional if you're a leader. If you are given that privilege, then it is your responsibility to develop people, um, number one. But, but number two, why do I believe so strongly in young professionals? For a few reasons. One, there's a lot of research that shows the jobs of the future, like they don't even exist today. Like we that's don't correct. even know what they're going to be. And, and the by, ones... the way, by the way, that's, that's always been true. Like That's if, you true. Go, if you go back in time, it's like when you were in high school, when I was in high school, they had no idea what was coming. Exactly. And so who is going to be ready for those jobs that we don't even know about? The ones who understand technology, the digital natives, right? Those mm -hmm. are the folks who are going to have the agility to be able to learn that new tool or capability um, and the openness to it, right? Because they've grown up around it. So one, I, we fundamentally need early career folks for our future economy and, and business success. Um, but, but two, I think young people bring a very important external perspective, right? Like what I love is the folks I get to work with because they're new and early, they're not they're, they're more unfiltered. There's no piece that yeah, exactly right. They haven't been jaded by like, well, we've always done it this way. And you know, this, because of the cost, we can't do this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the reasons we don't, you know, pursue things in our, our corporate lives. If you're new, you know, the world is your oyster and you're like, why not? Why can't we do it? Right. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate that the energy and a fresh perspective. And I think it's very important that we, we have very experienced folks who know know how things work. They know the history. They can provide that context. But to, you know, balance that with these early career folks who maybe aren't hindered by any kind of boundaries. And when we have the two together, I, I think it's magical. I have to tell you that it never bothers me to try to grab something or steal something that I think is wicked smart, especially when our guests say something that is really important for leaders. You said it is a privilege to lead. And I think especially when you get leadership, when you're younger, you don't fully understand that. And I think, you know, I would I would just say that it's amazing to have you in the tech world where you can be encouraging and empowering to people who are going to be in leadership roles and helping them understand that 
that being in leadership is about responsibility. It's not about I'm ordering you to do this or that or the other. I think that's very powerful. Yeah, thanks, Lloyd. And one one thing I didn't mention, you know, I, I am a leader. And I, what I think that's important to say is in corporate America, less than 5% of leaders are women of color. So I, I, mm. it's, you know, not only is there our responsibility as a leader, but I personally believe it is also my responsibility to make sure that this next generation, people of all backgrounds, but especially women of color, see themselves in leadership. And, and they, I, I have to pave that way in order for them to know that it's okay for them to pursue their dreams too. So for me, it's, it's very, it's, it's bigger, right. Than me. It's about this next generation understanding that they too can ascend to the same types of levels. Well, and it, it is that, and it's also this, if you're somebody who you always see people like you in leadership roles, you don't really understand the power of what that is. I mean, what you're talking about is so critical because there are women coming up, women of color in these companies, and you want them to go, that is possible. I see that. I can do that, right? Absolutely. All right. So listen, at some point, you develop what I would call a serious relationship with a big technology company. That's fair, right? Yes. You've, you've been with them about a decade. Can you kind of tell us uh, about your career path working in big tech? Because you just said something important. Very few women of color in leadership roles. How did you do it? Yeah, great, great question. So I started in big tech in a development program. A lot of big companies. So I'll tell you, when I was in grad school, I only applied to big companies with such programs. A lot of corporations, they have these rotational programs where you get exposed to all different parts of the business. So they have them for finance or supply chain or engineering or marketing, et cetera. So that was one something I learned in grad school. I never knew such things existed when I was in my, my bachelor's program. So I only applied to such companies. I will say it was a little bit of, a, again, a spreadsheet <laughs> exercise of like, which which companies are in fast-paced industries with these types of programs? I was interested in marketing. So, you know, who, who, who made that list of companies? Yeah. And the company, you know, the first company, the one I ended up joining, how I made my decision to pursue them was because of something we discussed earlier, Lloyd, was people. I was at a major career fair, and they have these for MBA students. There's literally 5,000 of us all in our black and navy blue suits, all competing mm -hmm. against each other to try and impress recruiters in a 30-second you know, elevator pitch. Yeah, at their no, pr no pressure, right? No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Right. And so all of us are like vying for these coveted spots at these big companies. And so I was out there, you know, hustling with the rest of them. And this one uh, company that I met, every single person I interacted with, I felt like I would really enjoy collaborating with them, mm. working with them, maybe, you know, going to a happy hour with them after work. Like I, like I felt like these are the kinds of people, if I have to spend 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week working, like these are people I would enjoy working with. And they were all very different. And I, I really think it's important for any big company 
to send your best people to recruit on behalf of you because that is your face to the external market. And I first impression first impression. And I think a lot of companies miss that, right? Like they don't think carefully about who they are putting in front of this external audience. But that is how I made my decision was literally because those people I felt more connected to than every other booth I had gone to. All right. I'm going to do two things here. I'm going to ask you this question. Were there any women of color in their recruiting team? The person who took the most interest in me, who opened the doors for me for further interviews was 100% a woman of color who I immediately made a connection with. So that's that like, see it to believe it, right? Like she, I saw her on behalf of the company. I saw something in her as a leader. She saw something in me as a potential talent. And it is because of her that I even moved through the process. All right. So I'm going to take a minute. Just because, you know, we've been talking about this global tech company, and I I just want to say something to our audience so that they understand what we're doing here. Uh, Nashida is here on her personal behalf, and we will be talking shortly about some of the other things that she has done. She's not representing the global tech company, so you notice we've been careful not to mention them by name, and that's just simply because, look, if you work for a big corporation, you know what that can be like, and she doesn't want to be representing the company, if you know what I mean. So having said that, that's my disclaimer. You are a top global social media team member where you work. What can you tell us about social media from the company's perspective? Or or I'm not saying don't mention them and talk, but you know how they see it and, and what is important to the company in terms of social media, in your opinion? Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm here speaking on behalf of myself, but what I can say is what's, what is really important in making a decision about where you work is finding a company that supports you being your authentic self and, um, you know, sharing your views and, and being unafraid to, um, you know, discuss topics. Yes, for sure. And so I, I feel really lucky that I'm in an environment where I can do that and both share my, my personal thoughts. And, you know, often my social media posts, if you follow me on LinkedIn, they're about my, my family and my kids and, you know, personal experiences, but also I can talk about innovation or why, you know, diversity is necessary in corporate America, et cetera. So for me, any company that promotes a culture where one, they are, comfortable with you being visible and encouraging you to be a thought leader is is a good thing. And like you noted, we have a, a program that recognizes uh, those team members who are leading in this space. And so I was um, lucky to be selected last year as the top global team member. And this year I'll get to pass the torch to the next person. Nice. All right. So I'm going to say this to you and I might get in trouble in offline later. You can you can kind of punish me if you want to. But I'm just going to say that for me, diversity is not about people of color. It is not about trying to uh, artificially come to some conclusion that you didn't come to before. To me, diversity is about strength. And I believe that you believe this also. And you certainly have been in global situations where you can see that that is true. Is that correct or not? 
Yeah, I agree. Diversity is no, it's not just about people of color, right? That just happens right. to be the the space that I'm very comfortable in because it's a very strong part of my personal and professional identity. But diversity is about, you know, bringing voices and experiences and abilities that are different to the table and making sure that all of those people have an equal opportunity to contribute. Right. And then the second part is the, the inclusion, right? Like it's not yes. enough to just have a, a beautiful, you know, company website where it looks like the United Nations, right? Like that's not the point is do right. all of those people have the opportunity to be valued members of the organization to step into leadership, right? To, to be visible, right? That, that well, it's about the contribution, right? It's about having the opportunity for a diverse set of people to make a contribution and make the company stronger. Exactly. Now, uh, I really get to take a left turn now, and this is my favorite. You know this is where we're going anyway. We get to get out of the corporate environment for a minute and talk about the other you. You founded two companies for yourself around helping children and empowering them. Can you tell us about this work, why you're so interested in kid courage? Now, that's your words, because I think this idea is powerful in the you know, in sphere of influence around real innovation. Yeah, absolutely. So I have two organizations that I've founded. One is called Tribe Academy. It is focused on empowering early career professionals and mid-career professionals, particularly those who are from underrepresented backgrounds. So we focus on Black and Latinx individuals and really helping to give them the training and access to, you know, big companies and making sure that they are in positions to thrive in, in the corporate wars. So that's one organization that I started uh, with a friend of mine who's also a, um, you know, corporate leader, because we, we knew that our tribe, our personal network are all themselves leaders at some of the top companies. And how could we leverage our collective expertise to help this next generation. Right. And, and, and look, uh, this idea of networking with other people and bringing those ideas to bear has been uh, pretty interesting for you in this other company, correct? Yes. In Tribe Academy, you mean, Lloyd? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Like it's, it's to me, the, when you see the connections that can happen just because we put people in the same space or when you can see a young person because they got access to a new technology capability, what they can deliver in a in a case study presentation because they learn this new tool. It's, it's incredible. So I have seen firsthand lives change, doors be opened, folks get new jobs, folks get promoted because of simply giving people the opportunity to connect. How many people do you think are looking at you as that woman of color that they really identify with? You probably don't even know, do you? Yeah, I don't know, but I know that I know that it matters. And I, and I yes. know that there are a lot of people like me who share the same um, commitment. And part of my work is how can I bring those people together, right? So we can scale because what I was doing before was doing it very one off, like one person at a time, which is very meaningful, but it's not ever going to change 
the total equation that we need, right? So if we can create programs and connections that scale, this is how we're going to be able to infuse that diversity that we need in the workforce. Okay, so you and these friends that are in different companies, okay, will you reach a point where you will jump from the corporate world and boom, uh, whatever that means? Uh, maybe. Like, I mean, I guess their door's always open, right, for us. And mm-hmm. right now, you know, these have been my passion projects, Tribe Academy, and I have another startup Mm -hmm. that is in early stages called Worldrew, which is focused on children's education. You know, right now they're passion projects to a large degree. I'm hoping that they can turn into something more, but you know, the road is long and I'm, you know, turning away, hustling, trying to figure out how to, how to scale them. Right. That's always the goal. That's exactly right. And listen, I want to take a break and go backwards and then forward. So here's how that works. Here you are, this woman of color, your words, uh, you, you go and you, you get, you get all these experiences in the Middle East because you, I'm going to say, these are my words. You're unafraid to go get the rest of the story or what's the other side of the coin or what do I not know? You're curious like I am, as you said, then you have your experiences at Bank of America, not because you think, man, I really want a career at Bank of America, but because you wanted the experience and you wanted to see if you could connect in a corporate environment. And then you go to work in the global tech space, let's call it. Okay. And then you found these two companies, which you're calling your, your passion or whatever you want to do. Here's my big question. Why in your opinion, and you may not be the person to answer this because you don't, you don't appear to have any, but why are we so afraid of failure? Yeah, I have failed many times, but what I believe is that we need to fail to learn. Right. And every great innovator ever has more failures than they had successes. So that's... Can you you just repeat that one more time, please? I think that's really (laughs) critical for people to hear. Yes. Every innovator ever has more failures than they have successes. And so you learn, you know, you hear this in cliche conversation all the time. You know, you learn more from failures than you do success. Of course, in this country in particular, I don't know if it's true around the world, but certainly in the United States, we celebrate what? Success. If you're not successful, it's like, let's shun you. And oh my God, that what went wrong? And that was terrible, you know, but you know, in the encouragers, our group, we're also a big believer in mentors. You've already talked about this so much, but I wonder if you could tell us about uh, a mentor that you've had that's changed your life. And perhaps you could share a story with us that kind of illustrates the impact that they've had on your life. Yeah, I am, like you said, a very big believer in mentors. I have had many. I still have many. I think it's important to have a variety of mentors. I have some who are peers. I have some who are junior to me. I have some who are senior to me. I have some that I go to for relationship and family advice, others for financial advice, right? So I have my whole network of people that I lean on. There's not one person who can solve everything for me, right? And I so it's having a, a strong team around you, I think is really important. And for me, if I had to like, pick a mentor that's been really fundamental i would i would probably say both of my parents because from a very 
early age, we traveled a lot as a family. My parents always had really interesting global assignments. So my, you know, love for global cultures was part of my my birth, like part of my DNA, I think. And my parents, um, you know, being being the strong Indian parents that they are, always are pushing me and my brother to be better. Like good is not ever good enough. So that can that's that very high standard of what good quality is, uh, what success is, I think that was instilled on me from a very early age, which was, it was tough sometimes as a kid, because you felt like you're always, you know, disappointing. But I think in looking back now, I think my, my grit and my resilience and my willingness to keep trying, even if I fail, was because of their belief that we can always be something more. So if I would say that, that was very important to me, their, their leadership and their, um, role model. It sounds like your parents are really powerful models for you too. But listen, I got to say, you know, we hear a lot in the Asian part of the world about uh, what is it, the tiger moms and all that. That puts a lot of pressure on the kids. Are you good at asking for help? Now I am. I, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't as a kid. I'm, I'm working on it. I would say that's one of my, you know, development goals. But yeah, it is. It is a lot of pressure for sure. Right. Like I'm, there's no doubt about it. And I think I had it relatively easy compared to some of my friends and relatives. But at some amount of pressure is good. Right. It drives results there. You know, I think I'm probably hybrid in how I'm raising my kids. I do definitely put pressure on them, but also want to make sure that they're you know, just having fun to have fun. Right. So I think we all, every generation kind of learns and takes from the previous one to do what they think is best. Right. I can clearly see that you do not know my family, but okay. (laughs) So listen, you know, you certainly are an absolute mentor. I know this. Can you share with us what in the world drives you to mentor others And talk to us about mentoring. How do you establish that kind of relationship? Because, like, there are people that are are listening to you right now that probably think about mentoring other people. Maybe they do. How do you connect with people to mentor them? Yeah, so the first part of the question, like, like why do we do it? One, because someone helped us, right? Like, this is just a simple someone did it for us. So this is a back to, it is our responsibility to pay it forward. And so if you, if, if someone has helped you, you should do the right thing for the next person. Right. I, I, I believe that. Um, but two, as you've heard from me throughout our conversation, I really do believe that you have to see role models in front of you to believe that you can achieve, you know, success. And so for me, it, it's back to, I have to be nurturing and giving opportunities to that next group to make sure that they can achieve even greater success than, than what I or my generation have. So that's, you know, that's we, go ahead. We, we talked a minute ago about how diversity is something that makes companies stronger. It makes countries stronger. It makes, it, it, it brings together lots of different talents. Well, 
I would say that mentoring other people also makes you stronger. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And even a few of the folks on our our um, encouragers call right now are mm-hmm. my mentees and who I can tell you I have learned from them as much as I think I have taught them. They have really helped me in a lot of ways. So I nice. fully agree with that. Totally and- nice. And, and listen, you know, you know this. I watched your TEDx talk. Can you tell us about that experience? How did that happen? How did you decide what you were going to talk about? And, and how did it turn out for you? Sure. Well, you will not be surprised at this answer. The way that I came to find the TEDx was a spreadsheet exercise. Is that uh, true? I'm, yes, I'm serious. I, it's true. I, I looked at, you know, what was geographically within driving distance to my house where there was going to be a TEDx in a time frame that made sense to me, that had a theme that I could align with. And I applied like, no, look, I'm serious. That, that is how I made mm. the decision to apply. Um, so That's I, interesting. so I found I, what I didn't know, a fun fact that you can apply to be a TEDx speaker anywhere. Like you don't have to live in that geographic location. So that mm. is good for all of us to know if you have a goal to ever be a TEDx speaker. But for me, the platform of, of TED overall, and I was part of TEDx, which are the smaller affiliates mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. of TED, the TED platform, but it's all about encouraging new ideas and us having a way to share something that we're personally passionate about with an audience and connecting with them. And we might not agree with everything, but we can still learn something. So for me, it was a challenge for myself to see, like, do I have something meaningful enough to share? And can I have the confidence to get up on that stage and do it? Right. So it was really just a a bucket list goal that I had and pursued it and applied and was selected and got to share the stage with eight other people that night who all had very different stories and topics. But each of us had a really kind of special connection we could make with the audience, even though we were talking about completely different things. So I think it's a really excellent platform to showcase your ideas, uh, to challenge yourself, to practice public speaking, and hopefully share some of your own wisdom with the world. And maybe some people will be inspired by it. Absolutely. Which is what new ideas are all about for sure. Now, look, you're not going to be surprised by this next question. Uh, you are, are focused on encouraging younger people. You, you're this mom of these two great kids, right? How can we engage our inner child to bring more of our creative side out into the real world of business? Yeah. So part of my TEDx talk, so it's called Channel Your Kid Courage. And what it's really, one of the areas is about creativity. And so what I've seen through my own children, they're five and a half and almost three, that they are fearless when it comes to trying new things. You know, they are, they don't see a, a preset way to do something, right? They just do it the way that feels right to them because they haven't been conditioned by society or school or even what we as parents have told them, right? Because, you know, little mm-hmm. kids don't really, don't really listen to you anyways. They do what they're going to do. 
So I saw it firsthand through my kids, you know, and then, but then I asked, I wanted to see, is it like just my kids who kind of are pushing boundaries, trying things in these new ways? No, it's not. I went and found a lot of research that shows that children are actually far more creative than adults, right? Mm. And this is, you know, research by NASA and other prestigious organizations. They have studied thousands of kids and found that their ability to be creative far outweighs our ability as adults. And it's because kids possess something called divergent thinking, which really means they are not bound by concepts such as right or wrong. They don't have this bias towards how things should be done. And they don't, they don't think about things like, you know, gravity or cost or historical context, right? They just, they just do it. And so if we can bring that same energy of not having fear to try things, not having fear to share a new idea, not being afraid to build a, a prototype of a product and to, you know, go through all those iterations to get to whatever it is that we're ultimately going to bring to the market. Please, can, along with all the people that tell you, no, you can't do this. This is terrible. Why are you trying this? Exactly. Right. So that's, that's what the kid courage is about, right? And if we, all of us, if we are in a position, whatever industry you're in, like every industry needs to innovate. So the ones who yes. are going to take us into that next level are the ones who are not afraid to fail, who are not afraid to share their ideas, who don't care what everyone else has told them will work because they're still going to go for it anyways. And I think that that's the kid courage part, right? They don't, they're not, um, you know, dictated by what society tells them. And I think that's really important for us to just drown out the noise and focus on if I think it's a good idea, let me try it. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? You that's, know, that's it's okay. interesting. It's interesting that you bring that up because I, I want to talk about the noise for just a second and kind of give you something from from my past, things that I have read about that have really startled me and changed the way I see innovation. You know, innovation is trying to push past what people say you can't do to get to something that has not in many cases, occurred before. And so I want to go way, way back, way before I was born, way before you were born. I, I think this was maybe in the 1940s, and I'm not sure you can look this up. I'm sure it, as I'm speaking, somebody can Wikipedia this or whatever. There was a moment in time when athletes knew that it was impossible to run a one-minute mile, right? I'm sorry, a four minute mile. And so and so people, the the elite athletes in the world would take a shot at this and take a shot at the say they would come so close, but they would not do it. Do you know what happened when the first person did it, Nishida? Do you know what happened? No, but I'm curious. Everybody started to do it. Just takes one. Right. So in other words, and I don't mean everybody, obviously, because if you and I meet on a track, you'll go, oh, no, don't do this. You're going to hurt yourself. But but I will say that a lot of people started to to hit that record and go beyond it. And it's just that as humans and especially adults, we put so many I can't in front of what we're doing. I don't think children do that at all. Right. 
No, my kids do not know what I can't means. I, I wish they did sometimes, but they don't. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I have one more question for you before we, we turn this over to, to the way this is going to end and give people an opportunity to ask questions if they want to. What is your best hope for all of us in the future? This is sort of the Miss America uh, contest question, if you will. You know, uh, what's your best hope for all of us in the future when it comes to innovation? Because, look, we face challenges as humans. It's just like what you said earlier when you said, you know, earlier they didn't know what jobs would be here and now we don't know what jobs will be here in the future we have no idea what is your best hope for innovation in the future yeah so i would say two things number one have the courage to try right that simply that just have the courage to try because as we've said throughout this conversation even if we fail we will learn something and maybe that one idea will, will be the one that we needed to see, you know, every other idea is possible, right? Like, so right. for sure. And then the second part is, I, I do truly believe that innovation is going to be greatest when you have the diverse perspectives and experiences. So make sure that you are including people of all backgrounds in those opportunities to innovate. Innovation does not belong to one country or one gender or one socioeconomic status and on and it still feels that way sometimes that it does just based on where power is distributed but what i learned especially from living you know in the middle east region is i saw innovation in communities where there was no resources maybe lack of education right? Lack of exposure, but yet the ingenuity was there. The resilience was there. The passion was there. The creativity was there. And in fact, because all of those things were lacking, the innovation was even greater because when you have all the resources available, of course, it should be easy to innovate. But when you have nothing and you can still find creative solutions to problems, like to me, that's a really beautiful thing. So I encourage all of us to be open to where innovation can come from and make sure that we have different types of voices and um, abilities at your respective you know, innovation table to make sure that you're getting truly the best idea that's possible. Absolutely. You know, a couple of years ago, I read a book and I'm sure you can find this uh, on your own, but I read a book about a, I, I will call him a teenager. I believe he was that uh, was in Africa and he was basically blocked from getting further education, but he found his way to a library and he lived in a village that had no electricity. So when it got dark, what did they do? They went to bed because if they didn't go to bed, things eat them. Right. So he basically innovated and built a way for them to, to channel water and to have electricity in their village. And that is real innovation when you have nothing, which means anybody within the sound of my voice, whether it's now or later on our podcast, you can innovate no matter where you are, correct? Absolutely. Nishida, I 
I want to tell you, it's so incredible to get to have this momentary conversation with you at this point in your career. I hope that you'll stick around for a few minutes in case some of our folks might have a question or two for you in a moment here. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sounds great. Excellent. You know, we launched Innovation in Audio and the Radio Rally because we do these live events on Clubhouse every Monday and every Wednesday, both at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, just to encourage radio, people working in audio, and to encourage people about innovation specifically and help you encourage your career. But we also have special events too. Check this out. Mark your calendar, especially if you know folks who are in the sales department at radio stations uh, nationwide. The 2022 sales liftoff is coming, planning your bigger revenue year, Thursday, January 13th, 2022. That is tomorrow, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific. And listen, sales consultant Alec Drake will be with us, former director of sales for Cumulus in Cumulus Media and Dallas. I will be here, of course, from Rainmaker Pathway. We will be opening up a panel of sales partners or revenue experts to discuss not only Q1 and Q2, but recruiting, uh, what that means, how to do it better, and a roundtable of actionable items to help you and your team grow your revenue in 2022, especially the first half of the year. Our revenue partners for this Q1 live event, Chuck Wood and Scott Howard. Chuck Wood is the VP and general manager of Delta Media Corporation. They're a multimedia company comprised of seven television and nine radio stations at South Louisiana. And Scott Howard is the general sales manager of WoWo Radio, which is Federated Media in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we are going to have actual actionable items, takeaways that you can take back to your sales department and generate more revenue. And by the way, more income for you. We do these live events. Uh, we, we try to make it clear to everybody that we don't push people to come up onto the stage and talk. Some people, many actually, just like to listen. We want this to be a safe place for anyone to do that. You don't have to do that at the same time. If you have a question for our guest, we want to offer you two ways to get that done. The first way, you can raise your hand, look down on the app itself on your actual screen on your smartphone. You can see a little hand and a note book. You just hit that thing that when you click on that, it identifies for us that you want to come up on the stage. We will absolutely let you do that. When you press it, I'll bring you up onto the stage here at Clubhouse. We do ask that you mute your microphone when you come up onto the stage immediately. Uh, if you don't uh, want to come up onto the stage, just shoot me a quick IM message on the app with your question, and I'll try to get it in. Don't forget, coming up on uh, next Monday, January 17th, programming legend John Sebastian. He has this thing called the wow factor. You may or may not have heard about it. It is uh, something that is bringing him success in Phoenix, Arizona. He hopes to be able to put that in markets all across the United States. At the same time, John Sebastian is a programming legend and uh, has had lots of opportunity to win in a lot of different markets. He's going to share that expertise with us. Um, I, I do have this question from our audience for you, Nishida. Uh, when you're empowering young people at work, do you um, do you find them or do they find you or is that part of your role in the company? 
<laughs> a little bit of both. Yes, it's definitely part of my job. I lead a team of mostly early career folks. So that is my job. But also, I think the reason I'm in the position to be leading such a team is because I was very engaged organically over the past decade almost on mentoring and coaching and taking a very strong interest in the development of young people who I've met through recruiting events or met in the cafeteria or just saw them on a Zoom call and wanted to learn more about them or found them on LinkedIn, whatever it is. So it's a little bit of a both. Um, mm -hmm. And I've definitely, I think, built a brand now of, of being a leader who is known for developing young talent. So I think more folks keep coming to me now because of the reputation that I've built. Well, it's interesting how you can get that done, really. And uh, and that's always good when you have the opportunity to do that. I have a second question for you from our audience. Uh, do you find that especially younger people struggle with big corporations getting lost in the shuffle or understanding their real power to innovate? Yeah, for sure. I think it is very easy to get lost in a big company. And that is why it is so important to build that strong network, to have mentors, um, you know, to and and to make and to have that courage and people kind of reminding you that you your ideas matter and that you have something valuable to contribute. So I I see it all the time, people getting lost, and I think it's really important that we are aware of that and doing our part to create programs and opportunities to remind them of their value and give them that platform to share ideas or pitch to leaders. You know, a lot of what I've done is create those spaces for people to be visible to the decision makers and the, the influencers. Well, here's what's interesting. You're this powerful woman of color. I'm using your words again. Uh, and, and you have found yourself uh, mobile and moving up into leadership positions. And when I ask you that question about, are you good at asking for help? I heard that. I heard the kid in you. I heard that literally. And you must think about these things when you're trying to encourage and inspire these younger people. You must think that they're, they're hiding some of that, right? They want to appear normal. They want to not step out there too much, especially in a corporate environment. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think we're all afraid of, you know, not appearing like we don't know the answer, don't know how to do something right. But if Correct. we create environments and if you have people who allow you to fail and encourage you to fail and support you when you fail to help coach you, you know, how to be better the next time, then over time you'll become more comfortable putting yourself out there. But I agree. It's taken me probably close to a decade to have that confidence. I definitely did not have it on day one. So I, I can for sure empathize with that feeling. Well, listen, they're so fortunate to have you at this company and, and anyone that you have as a mentee. And I bet anyone that is mentoring you, they're all fortunate to have you in their lives. I'm glad that you and I have connected. I hope that that will uh, continue, of course. And I want to thank you for being on the encouragers and especially innovation and audio. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Okay, I also want to thank you for joining us every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for Innovation and Audio on Clubhouse. Remember, if you know somebody that you would like to hear as a guest in the future on Innovation and Audio, you can email me directly. It's easy, F-O-R-D at RainmakerPathway.com. A huge, huge thank you to Nishida Roy Pope for being our amazing and very patient and giving guest on this live event and the podcast that will result from this. Thanks to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast and JustJoeProductions.com for creating our audio footprint and distributing them. They do a really amazing job. If you don't remember anything else from tonight, and I hope you do, please remember this. Be kinder than you have to be. Thank you for being a part of innovation and audio with the encouragers. And good night.